welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Eastside. So good to be with you this morning. Um, again, my name is Mike Dean. I'm one of the leaders here at Eastside, and I have the privilege to bring you, uh, bring before you today the word of God. Um, so we're in our series on Mark and I'm going to be preaching from March, the fourth chapter. You can go ahead and find that in your Bibles or pull that up on your smart devices. If you don't have one, it's okay. We'll go ahead and have it up on the screen as well. So this series on the unwelcomed and unwelcomed humanity. And in this series, what we wanted to do was take a look at how the kingdom of God breaks in through Jesus. And Jesus was unwelcome because he wasn't what they expected. They had been awaiting this Messiah to come, and Jesus was not what they expected. And he did things in super unconventional ways, which kind of made certain of them more sure that this dude ain't it. And that's what we find as soon as we open up chapter 4. So let's read uh, verse 1, Mark chapter 4. It says, again, this is the NIV. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake, and the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So in chapter 3 that was preached on last week, we saw people coming from every which way to hear Jesus preach, and as they, as they were coming, he was being pushed more and more toward the water, and so he told his disciples, hey, go get a boat ready so they don't crush me. That's what it said in, in, in chapter 3. This time, he was thinking ahead. He said, y'all not going to get me twice. So they didn't need to, he didn't have them go get a boat. He already had one ready. As the crowd grew larger, he moved onto the boat that was already prepared. Now, more than that, though, take a look at this. Notice how the boat is kind of becoming his pulpit. It's kind of becoming the place where he preaches the word. Now, many coming around to see who he is, and they're trying to see if the rumors are true. And so the crowds are growing larger and larger. So while he started at the edge of the shore, he ended up on the boat, and the people ended up on the edge of the shore. But the many critics that were in the, in the audience were using even this against him. It was another unconventional way of Jesus. How are you going to preach from the boat? A true rabbi, a true teacher, you wouldn't be preaching from no boat. You preach God's word from the synagogue. Now, you can't drop my Mac, um, Mr. Music Stand. So we're going to make sure you real good and sturdy. Because my pockets ain't like that. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's go verse 2. Now, he taught them many things by parables. In this teaching, he said this, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and some birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still, the other seed fell on good soil 
It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, Jesus opens up speaking in a parable. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone is familiar with Christianese, and I don't think parable is used in any other circle but Christendom. So I'm going to go ahead and give an idea what a parable is. So para, the idea of para is to set alongside. So what Jesus does with parables is he takes a simple story and he set it, sets it alongside of a spiritual truth. And that parable illustrates a spiritual lesson. Now, Jesus uses these parables all throughout his ministry. And he uses them to teach. Now, for those who are hard-hearted, he uses the parables to warn. But he uses them to show his heart to the open-hearted. That's those who would receive his word in faith. Y'all with me? Okay. So even as he opens this chapter with a parable, he was actually putting that very parable into effect. What I'm saying is he knows that the parable itself that he just gave them will only be beneficial to and received by those who have an open heart or who have that good soil that he just had told them about. In fact, when he says, whoever has ears, let them hear, it's really about calling the audience to surrender their pride and their self-reliance and to submit their hearts to God. Now, he had just talked to them about the different levels of hardened hearts and unfruitful soils. And really, when he's saying, he who has an ear, let him hear, he's almost saying, look, if you know your soil is jacked up, please excuse yourself. I'm not taking, like, freedom with the text. Let's look at the next verse. Okay, verse 9. Where are we at? Verse 9. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, right? Verse 10. When he was alone... The 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. What just happened? They just said that the crowds were growing so large that he who was on the shore had to get into the boat because the crowd was going larger and larger and it pushed him onto the boat. But as soon as he said, he who has ears, let him hear, the very next verse said, when he was alone. Where'd they go? He didn't go nowhere. Where'd they go? It said when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. So he wasn't actually alone, but it must have been such a huge exodus that it might as well have been alone compared to how big the crowd was that had gathered when he first had started teaching. All right. So now we go to verse 10 through 12. Verse 10 says when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But those on the outside, but to the, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Jesus said, "The secret of the kingdom has been given to those with good soil. Those whose hearts are open to God." But those on the outside will only hear the simple story. Remember, two parts to a parable. They will hear the simple story, but they will miss the spiritual truth. But the spiritual truth is heard by those who has the ears to hear by faith. Verse 13, then Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows his word. So now he's explaining what he, just, what he just told him. The farmer sows his word. Some people are like seeds along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away. Uh-oh, sorry. Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, they hear the word, they accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, and some a hundred times what was sown. Now, God's word sown on good soil, which is an open, humble heart that receives his word by faith, will produce fruit. Okay? God's word sown on good soil, which is an, um, a humble, open heart that receives his word by faith, will produce fruit. Now, this is part of my issue with Christianity, modern days. Because everybody wants to identify as a Christian. Because it makes them feel some kind of good or some kind of secure. I've seen parents force their kids to an altar call to repeat a certain prayer. Because for that parent, now I have some security. My child is saved, right? I've seen preachers use idolatry to lure people to the altar to receive Jesus using their idols that they already exalt above Jesus and say, I know you're really not into Jesus, but I know you're into this thing. And if you come and get Jesus, you'll get this thing. You understand what I'm saying? All so that there is this false sense of security that this person now is saved. This person now will inherit the kingdom of God. Yet, if you ask many of those individuals, they will confess that they have had no actual transformation in their life. But they still believe they're saved because somebody told them they were. Now, we've become a nation and a people who are afraid to mention anything about a person's fruit or their lack of fruit produced in their life. Because we don't want them to say we're judging them. Now, this is the mentality that honestly made American Idol the legendary success that it is. American Idol is prophetic. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm serious. Hear me out. American Idol knows that the world is so scared of being labeled a judge, so the world will keep quiet and lie to their friends so that the friend has to actually go before the actual judge to be told the truth. Then they get up there squawking in all kind of ungodly keys. But they do it with confidence because some friend did not tell them the truth. Listen, if your friend tells you that they on this new weight loss plan and you say, hey, man, oh, that's great. How much were you weighing when you started? Oh, man, I was 180. Oh, cool, cool. You've been on it for like four months now. How much are you? Oh, I'm 195. You got to do some real tricky math to get from 180 to 195 going downward. Like, 
I, I didn't take that course. One of the most loving things you can do when you see a loved one going in a direction that is opposite their express destination is at least bring attention to it. You're not acting as a judge who has the final say in the matter, but maybe as, at least as a helpful advisor who just wants them to be ready when they actually do meet the judge. And there is no such thing as being a follower of Jesus and not bearing fruit. You may not bear it at the same rate. You may not bear the same amount, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But there will be evidence. There will be transformation. There will be fruit. If I had a friend come by the house for like a game night and they say, hey, Mike, on the way over, I stopped by Taco Bell, right? And I know we're going to be there a good three, four, five hours. I'm going to pull him to the side and I'll be like, hey, bro, <clears throat> when the time come, go use that bathroom upstairs, right? <laughs> okay? Because for some reason, when people, uh, uh, architects uh, 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 design these houses, they like to put the downstairs bathroom right by the kitchen, right? And we don't want to smell all that, okay? So, now why would I even give them that, 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 that pep talk though? Because I know the power of Taco Bell, right? Can I get a witness? Amen. Okay. I've seen it at work over and over again. I myself am a living witness of the power of Taco Bell. If you just ate Taco Bell on your way over here, 10 minutes, 30 Definitely within two, three hours, it's going to be some stomach rumbling going on somewhere, okay? And there's no way you would be able to tell me that you ate Taco Bell and not need at least a little bit the upstairs bathroom within a three-hour span. And the same way if somebody told me they had Taco Bell and in four, nevers, in four hours never needed to even peek at the upstairs bathroom, I'm going to tell them you a lie. <laughs> Right? In the, in, 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 the, in the same way, though, if someone told me they had a life-changing encounter and put their faith in Jesus Christ but haven't seen any fruit after a considerable amount of time, I'd have to urge them to reconsider for their own benefit, for their own good. When an individual in their heart has heard the word and accepted the word in faith, there will be a crop produced in their life. However large or small, however expedient or slowful, the end result will be exponential growth. Amen? And then he says, not to hide the, the secrets of the kingdom of God. So let's go to verse 21. Boom. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. The kingdom of God is a light that we should be eager to put on display for the illumination of every dark place. And we should pray that every lost person be found because that's what happens when you turn on a light. You're able to find things that have been lost. So many, now the idea here is that the room was dark before the lamp was brought in. 
Okay? Now, so many of us believers only like to shine our light once we get amongst other light. That's a little counterintuitive. Sunday morning is when not is not when our light is most effective. Sunday, we might be the equivalent of coming and getting our little oil lamps refilled, and we can look around and say, oh, look at all the beautiful light. When all the lights come together, like it's a beautiful thing, and then we come and actually worship the light, right, the radiance. He don't need our light on this day. We come to worship the light, the giver of all light. But the goal of the lamp is to reveal what has been concealed and to expose what has been hidden and to illuminate a dark place that people who are wandering around aimlessly and lost might find the path to Jesus. So simple question is, what are we doing with our light? Are some of us blowing it out when we get in certain social circles? Have we reduced our responsibility of shining this light to just showing up on a Sunday morning when it's least effective? Jesus tells them, tells us, They have a responsibility to shine, to shine that light, to put it in a place where it will get the most radiance. Let's jump to verse 26. Excuse me. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Though he does not know how, all by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now notice in the first seed parable, he was talking about what kind of heart, what kind of soil will be given the secrets to the kingdom of God. And then he switches to now the way the kingdom of God works works once you've been given access and citizenship. Notice he went from, in the first parable, the farmer, which was God, scattering seed. And now he went to a man scattering seed. So the question is, are we in this parable the ones being scattered or the ones doing the scattering? And I think we're both in different scenarios. This is how it works in the kingdom of God as seeds and as scatterers of the seeds. See, God sowed the seed on good soil and it produced fruit because God's word has been received in faith. And then he says, let your light shine. Don't hoard or hide the word you've received, but spread it, scatter it. As you scatter the seed, you don't be trying to discern what kind of soil you're throwing the seeds on. That's what he's saying in this passage. God will take full responsibility for the degree or rate of fruit these seeds will produce. Your responsibility is to go to sleep, get back up again, and keep scattering seed. That's going to annoy some of us who want to have our clipboards and, you know, track the growth and the rates of all the new believers and how fast they're coming into the isms of the church and isms of Christianity. The fruit grows all by itself. There is no human effort, and it happens in segments. First the blade, then the ear. This shows process. See, they expected the kingdom of God to break through in force and swift and all at once, but that's not the way of the kingdom. 
They will grow in a slow, intentional, and steady pace in God's time, not ours. So we can take off our expectations of what we think we should see by the time we should see it. There will be growth, but it may not be at the pace we all expect. Now, when they are fully ripe and perfect, that's when Christ returns. So that sickle and harvest language, that, those are metaphors for the last judgment. All right. So now let's go to verse 30. And he says, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. The kingdom of God will come in a totally unexpected way, small and unnoticed. That's what he's saying in this, in this, in this section. Mustard seed, small, seemingly insignificant. They were likely expecting horses and chariots and all the obvious signs of royalty and majesty. And they got a baby in a stable in Bethlehem. In the kingdom of God, we will make room and space even for enemies that want to do us harm. Take a look at verse 32 again. Birds can chirp. What's that? Rest, nest in the tree's shade. Now, in the first parable, the bird came and immediately ate the seed that fell on the ground, right? And then later, Jesus, when he was explaining that parable, he likened those birds to Satan and said they were Satan or doing the work of Satan. Now we see these birds again, probably looking for some more seed to devour, but instead they find a place to take a break and be blessed by the fruit of the seed that they aim to keep from ever being planted. That is what the kingdom of God is like. The fruit that is produced blesses the one that tried to keep the fruit from ever existing. Some of you will hire someone who worked actively against the founding of your company. Some of you will actually forgive and serve someone who was intentionally, who has intentionally done you great harm. Some of you will bring a vision to pass that the devil was dead set on discouraging from you accomplishing. It will bless the ones who worked to keep it from ever existing. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Let's read verse 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
This is our final section of scripture for this morning. Now, after a long day, Jesus was tired. He had been preaching. He had been healing. He had been teaching. And so he tells the disciples, let us go to the other side. Now, why did he say that? Why did he want to go to the other side? Some say he wanted to escape the crowd. Some say that he was doing so much ministry on this side that if he was able to get to the other side, when they got to shore, there wouldn't be no more ministry to be done. He can just chill for a minute. Now, I don't, dis- I don't agree with them because when he got to the other side, we'll see this next week in chapter 5, there was a demon-possessed man waiting on him. And as soon as he got off the boat, he had to deal with that man. So that don't sound real restful to me. I've seen some people try to cast out demons. Yeah. Um, now, I'd submit the reason was because it was time to test his students. After all that teaching he just did, all these parables, it was time for a test. Now, he had just told them that he had, would do everything. Oh, the devil thought he, ooh, 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 he tried to, man, right, uh, mm, right, hey, man. Loose here, Satan. Okay. No, I'm just playing. Okay. Um, man, why is that doing that? What's that? There we go. Thank you, man. Now, you waited till the end, but I, I appreciate it anyhow. Thank you. Okay. Uh, where was I at? Boom. Okay. Yes, the test. The test, that's where we at. So, he had told them in all these parables that he would do all that it was necessary to sustain them and to grow them. And he said that all they had to do was sleep and get up and trust God's word to accomplish the rest. Now, he had just scattered the seed of his word in this moment when he said, let us go to the other side. At that point, there is no question or should be no question as if they would make it to the other side. If he said, let us go. If Jesus walked on the earth today and he said, Mike, I'll see you next Sunday. When I pray tonight, I'm not praying, God, let me see tomorrow. I'm not praying that for another seven days. Because if Jesus just said, I'll see you next Sunday, I know I'm going to be alive tomorrow. Because I got to get to next Sunday. When he said, let us go to the other side, there should have been no question that they would make it to the other side. So a furious, violent storm came about and the waves are breaking over the boat and Jesus is asleep because he know he getting to the other side. The boat was nearly swamped. The disciples are panicking and yelling and screaming. They're doing their best to bail water and gain control and Jesus is in the stern with a pillow knocked out. He sleep like me. And they probably wanted to impress Jesus. Seeing all the miracles he's done, all the ways he's made for them, they probably wanted to be able to wake him up and say, hey, Jesus, this storm was crazy, man, but we handled it. We didn't even need you, Doc. Like, we, it was cool. We did that. Or maybe they were a little too proud. After all, they are the fishermen, right? They're supposed to know the sea. They're supposed to know how to maneuver on water. He's a carpenter. But finally... They decided to seek him out once they finally felt their life was in danger. And Jesus wakes up. 
Now we got to notice the sounds of the water smacking against the boat didn't wake him up. The rocking of the boat, tipsy topsy turvy, did not wake him up. The noise from all the disciples yelling, screaming, get a bucket, get another bucket, get the water out, get the, that didn't wake him up. But the sound of one of his disciples crying out to him as a savior immediately woke Jesus up. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, waking him up afraid, that wasn't the issue. But you got to put some respect on his name. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? How dare you question Jesus in this manner? I'm just so offended. As a follower of this man and worshiper, you just going to talk to my Jesus like that? Don't you care if we... If, never mind. <laughs> now, this question is such an obvious display of a lack of faith. Yet, notice though, Jesus doesn't even rebuke him first. He rebukes the storm. Even when our faith is lacking, he's willing to move on our behalf to calm us, settle us. Now, then he got up, he rebuked the wind, and he told the waves, quiet, be still. The translation that I grew up on said, peace, be still. I like that peace. Um... And that was an obvious display of authority. So the disciples had already witnessed his authority over humanity, and he's healing people, and he's doing this thing. And then in chapter 5, he's going to demonstrate his authority over the demonic forces in that realm. But right now, he's displaying his authority over nature. He's trying... The disciples wanted him to get water out the boat, right? We kind of have our little things that we focus on in the problem, and we think that's the problem if God would just fix this part. So they wanted just help getting water off the boat. That might have been why they were calling them. Like, Jesus, you sleep. You ain't going to grab a bucket? Like, help us, help us, right? And then he wakes up, and what does he do? He shuts the whole storm down. I'm not grabbing no bucket. That's what we do sometimes. We, God, get a bucket. Jesus, get a bucket. <laughs> He's trying to drive home to his disciples that everything is under his authority and rule. Everything is under his control. No circumstance is too difficult. No storm is too tumultuous. No demon is too powerful. No addiction is too strong. No mountain too high. No valley too low. No blaze too hot. No ocean too deep. He is God over all. Which is why he must ask, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I think that's a relevant question, though, for us, too. Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? His word will not return to him void. He speaks with purpose and intentionality. So why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? Still have no faith? What promises of God are you refusing to believe? Because that's what ultimately fear is. That's where it will come from. Is it that he's good? Are you refusing to believe that? Are you struggling to believe that? That he will provide everything that you need? That he is actually enough? That he is actually your greatest treasure? 
that he is all that you need for fulfillment, that your identity is in him, the unspeakable joy you seek is in him, the peace that you are running to exhaustion to apprehend is in him, the approval and the feeling of accomplishment that you've been seeking from everybody and all these social sites can ultimately only be found in him. It was right for the disciples to call him teacher when they woke him up because class was definitely still in session. And what they needed to learn most, they needed a subject, a hands-on lesson on the gospel. They needed to see that even good soil Sorry, even good soil has rocky ground tendencies. Now, remember the rocky ground. When the seed was sown on it, it endured for a while. But when tribulation or persecution, the storm, arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away and they lose faith. He was teaching them and he's teaching us. What is he teaching us? If you are a Christian, if you claim to have your faith in Christ, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, He's teaching us that even with the secrets to the kingdom in our hearts and even with God literally in our boat, life will still happen. Storms will still come. And no matter how hard you work, all the effort in the world cannot save you from drowning. You are working so hard to overcome the storm while God is literally on your boat. You'd be in good shape if you had the captain. You'd be in good shape if you had the captain or the engineer who made the boat on your boat. But you have it even better. You have the creator of the sea chilling on a pillow in the stern. Yet you're freaking out. And he's just... Mic check, all right. And he's just waiting to hear you call out to him in faith so that he could not grab a bucket, but he may shut the whole storm down. And he may not shut the whole storm down, but he's with you on the boat. The master of the sea is with you on the boat. The storm is subject to his authority. And he who controls the storm is on the boat. So call on him. Trust in him. His word is true. He's in control. He has a plan. He's intentional. Now, if you're not a believer today, the boat you're on is sinking. Let's be clear. And I say this in love, but the boat you're on is sinking. And for so long, you've been coming up with crafty ways to plug holes and bail water and stay afloat, but you're tired. You live in constant worry and angst of sinking and drowning, and you know the boat. You can't handle much more. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer, and he does it with pleasure. He wants to rescue you off the boat. If you call on him for help, he will respond. 
invite him onto your boat and let him restore the boat. Let him steer the boat. He don't need no co-pilot. Let him steer the boat. Let him make your boat, your life brand new. Let him give you the rest you've been yearning for. Let him give you the peace you've never even known. Now, depending on where you come from, there are different ways that people tell you you get into this type of deal. And because we're in America, we expect everything to cost something. To get a deal this good, to, to, to have a relationship with a savior this great, there must be a cost, right? Well, you're right, actually. The cost is perfection. The cost is a life completely spotless of any sin. The cost is a life completely holy from birth to death. That's what it costs. So it may as well cost 30, 300 trillion times 300 trillion dollars. Because in either regard, neither of us, none of us can, can, can afford it. But there's good news. And this is what we hold to. This is what we cling to. Jesus the Christ, who is God, was fully aware of the cost. And he knew none of us would be able to pay it. So he voluntarily stepped off his throne to come down and to be born in human flesh. To live a life of perfection for our benefit on our behalf. And at the end of that perfect life, he hung on a cross and bled and died the most horrific and gruesome death. And then he took that life of perfection and that death and he offered them both to God the Father as a full payment for our sins. And as a receipt that that payment had been received and that the check actually cleared, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave with all power so that those whose faith and trust are in him could exchange the life they never could live for his. And they could exchange the death that their sins earned them for the right to life everlasting with the Father in this world and the world to come. Jesus paid it all. You that have an ear, let them hear. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you for doing everything necessary for us to be one with you, to be seen as right in your eyes. God, I pray that you will continue to do work in our hearts I pray that Eastside would be a place where good soil exists and as seeds are scattered, we produce a crop. We bear fruit that tells the world of your goodness, of your glory, of your kingdom. God, may you bring your kingdom here. May we continue to live counter to the ways of this world and put your kingdom fully on display. And God, wherever we are in this room, from faithless to those who have been walking with you for a long time, I pray that you would illuminate this morning. Reveal yourself. 
by the power of your spirit. I pray in your name. Amen. And so now we're going to go into a time of response to God's word. In the scriptures, God speaks and people respond. That's what worship actually is. And so we're going to do that in three primary ways this morning. First of all, our prayer team is in the back toward the right. If you desire prayer, they are there to pray with you, pray for you during these next couple songs. Secondly, communion. The table will be open. It is open. And this, this is the meal that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Take this bread, take this blood or juice or wine into yourself to remind yourself, to remind each other of your need for me, that I am all that you need for sustenance. I am all that you need for provision. I am all that you need for life and satisfaction. And lastly, we will respond in singing songs of worship. So I'll turn it over to the worship team and uh, let's worship together, y'all. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.